What did you have for breakfast today? <laughs> That's the classic question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I had poached eggs on toast for breakfast this morning. Okay. Any particular type of toast? Uh, it was multigrain sourdough and I'm a huge believer in avocado and Vegemite. So, okay. it involved avocado and Vegemite. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Holly Ransom. Holly is the CEO of Emergent, a keynote speaker, Port Adelaide Football Club director, the 2014 G20 Youth Chair, a definite fan of Avocado with Vegemite, and probably the youngest person to be named in Australia's 100 Most Influential Women. Holly specializes in what we call disruptive strategy and building the capacity of leaders for change in their organization, which has seen her work with the likes of Microsoft, Europe Car, KPMG, the AIS here in Australia, as well as local government. She's an experienced non-executive director who's shown her capacity to lead across many organizations, including when the Prime Minister here in Australia appointed Holly to chair the G20 Youth Summit. Her corporate career has involved working as Chief of Staff for NABWELL CEO Andrew Hagger and for Rio Tinto CEO Sam Walsh, which I think Sam imparting the most on her, particularly that immense sense of what real leadership actually is. To me, Holly represents what happens when you maximize the opportunities that are given to you in life and that when you take more responsibility, how meaningful life can actually be. She is so industrious, it scares me. I mean, she's got an immense amount of non-executive directorships that she holds to the point that you almost start to think she must be carrying a time-turner like Hermione and Harry Potter. But she's also really aware that life requires balance. And having dealt with the overwhelm of responsibility and depression, I think that's a really important message for a lot of our audience to hear. I've got to say many thanks to Michelle Burke for making this happen and for doing the introduction. We covered a lot, which included her love of the AFL and Port Adelaide. We spoke about Sam Walsh, the CEO of Rio Tinto, and leadership, time and energy management, the role of business on political issues. We then got into depression and self-care and what vulnerability can offer to that. What she'd do in her first days or 100 days, that is, as PM of Australia, lessons learned from her grandmother and what is difficult to find middle ground on. I think this would be a very enjoyable episode for anyone who has liked listening to our past episodes on leadership 
entrepreneurship and in this case, a bit of vulnerability. If you enjoyed this episode in particular, make sure you go check out my chat with Michelle Burke, which is episode 53, where we spoke about entrepreneurship and leadership as well. If you want the show notes or you want to learn more about our previous guests, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe on your podcast app. If you are already, consider sharing with one of your friends over Messenger as well if they like these little chit-chats on entrepreneurship and leadership. But look, as I say each week, thank you so much for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving us a chance. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Holly Ransom. Holly, thank you for joining me in what's probably a busy schedule for you on a lovely Wednesday. Thanks for having me. Um, First key question, probably the most crucial question for you as we get into the interview. Mm. Um, Why would someone who grew up in WA barrack for Port Adelaide? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I didn't know that this would come so early, but it is a common question. I think I confuse a lot of people because um, uh, I'm a West Aussie originally. I live in Melbourne and I'm on the board of of an Adelaide football team, uh, the mighty Port Adelaide power. And, you know, I've loved footy since I was a really little kid. If you went and looked at my scrapbook at age eight, uh, I've still got it at home actually. I'd written that I wanted to be the Brownlow medalist as my sort of year three life aspiration. So football was well and truly in my blood. I was devastated when I got told at 10 that I wasn't allowed to keep playing anymore. Uh, and actually was an Eagles fan growing up. So okay. very passionate um, West Coast Eagles fan, moved to Melbourne, had always wanted to play a role in giving back to the game that I just felt like had given me so much. Yeah. You know, it was something, you know, every weekend of my life, you know, I've spent watching multiple football games for as long as I can remember. Absolutely loved it. And uh, David Koch came headhunting, um, was completely, you know, out of the blue. I, I'd been getting involved in the football community over this side of the country since I'd moved here, but David sort of approached and said, look, you know, I've, I'm really trying to, to grow kind of the, the strategic challenge um, that we're setting up around our board table. We want people that think differently. We want people that are coming from outside of um, South Australia that are bringing a different perspective to the game. We're conscious of the digital age, this new generation of fans needing to be able to think differently about how we take the game to them. Um, And would you be open to a conversation with us about joining the Port Adelaide Football Club? And uh, as probably many of your listeners could appreciate, um, someone of my gender but also my age is a bit of a unique commodity in the football world. Mm. And so one of the things that I was really adamant about was I, I would not say yes to that opportunity if it if it was token, if that was something that someone was doing to tick a set of boxes or anything like that. that. Uh, Well, I think being a young woman, you've been in situations where you've been that before, or certainly I had anyway. And I I was really adamant that I wanted to to check the motivation um, from which Port Adelaide were coming. And I did probably as much due diligence on them as they did on me. I was calling (laughs) a lot of people saying, you know, what are they like? And, you know, what, what are the CEO and chairman like? And what's this group of board members like? And I've got to say, I am head over heels in love with the Port Adelaide Football Club. I've had nothing but a sensational experience um, since, you know, we mutually agreed that this was a great way to move forward. And I joined the board three seasons ago. And uh, they are a really special group of people. Mm. Um, Part of what I love about the club is it's got this great challenger mentality. And I think what we're doing in China is testament to that. 
but it's firmly got its feet in community. It's so proud of its history, the work that we do in Indigenous communities, um, the way that we give back to our pocket of South Australia in particular is just unparalleled. Yeah, I think Port Adelaide is one of those clubs, like clubs like, say, Collingwood and Hawthorne that are very well-rounded and they've sort of taken taken it to where the game is going and sort of that I don't know what you feel about this but sort of the model of English football clubs Mm. like you know you got to think like I don't know 20 years ago it was still a semi-pro no 20 30 years ago it was still like a semi-pro game the AFL so um yeah I definitely agree with that I think um St Kilda are trying to jump on that bandwagon of getting to getting <laughs> and the games. And they've got some great to... people, you know, in in roles around that footy club yeah. at the moment. I think the move back to Moorabbin will be really solid for your Saints as well. Um, but you're right. I think we're continually challenging ourselves. And, and part of what I get excited about, and David Kosh is a great exemplar of this, is people who are looking beyond just Australia and the code that we're in mm. for inspiration and to challenge ourselves to go well. Why are we just AFL best practice? Why couldn't we world's best practice in how yeah. we do this? Or why couldn't we challenge ourselves to innovate in that sort of way and, and take inspiration from the EPL or the NFL or, you know, completely outside of sport and think about how we bring that in? Yeah, because a lot of people don't, I don't know, in AFL land, a lot of people don't seem to realise that AFL teams are sort of like at this weird sort of junction. It's like entertainment, sport, community, yeah. sometimes real estate. Like it's everything, particularly for clubs like St Kilda that are very in like a local community like Moorabbin. Yep. And um, yeah, it's really weird how in club land, as they say, like they haven't taken a modern approach to little things like customer acquisition. I mean, you get you get customers for free for a lifetime. It's so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area. Like I said, I think... Port Adelaide, Collingwood, the Hawthorns of the world are really leading that. Um, I appreciate you saying that. It's good to hear that we've, we've got that sort of reputation because it's certainly something we work at. Oh, definitely. Um, you said before about the token aspect. One of the things I was thinking about, and when I interviewed Michelle as well, she was the one who uh, Michelle Burke who introduced us, um, she was also really wary of that too. And I'm just curious as to how how you would manage that, particularly, obviously, you're a professional speaker now. So, in some ways, it's also your job. So, I'm curious as to how you would manage that. What, to be the token female, you mean? No, My job? Well, like that's your topic. Those are your topics of interest. You know, uh, young people, women, leadership, mm-hmm. business, they're all sort of themes that you would talk on for yep. work. And how I'd manage it in terms of... Uh, my of, be- own. of being pigeonholed, like you said before. Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, I get you. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's an interesting one. I, I, I'm a big believer that you have to focus your own effort on your own sphere of influence. Mm. I can't control how people are going to um, perceive me, whether they're going to like me or not, or even more extreme, hate me or love me, whatever way you, you want to look at the spectrum. And so the best that you can do is control the effort that you're putting in the the manner in which you're you're working on yourself and therefore the way that you show up and the way that you contribute and I think that's what I've always tried to do you know is earnestly to to come into situations with you know the the greatest set of of facts um experiences knowledge know-how that I can bring to it and I, I think one of the things you learn quite early is you know 
you've got kind of a filter for who you want to work with right. um, that's going to appreciate all of that for what it is. You know, come at things at a far deeper level than just kind of that superficial piece around, you know, is is in this in some way ticking a, a diversity and inclusion type of yeah, set of yeah. boxes. That being said, you know, I acknowledge that there is uh, importance around making sure that we do have women and young people that are breaking those ground. And to some degree, you know, I remember one of my mentors saying this to me and it's something that's resonated and I do think about a bit and it's sort of intention with what I've just said. She used to say, I might be a token appointment, but I'm token until I'm in a boardroom and I open my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that idea that sometimes, you know. Um, it's the way in. It, it might be the way in. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I think sometimes we can't be begrudging of that because yeah. progress I don't know, progress can come in all different shapes, sizes and forms and it's often not as perfect as we want it to be. And if we were waiting for perfect, we'd be waiting for decades. Yeah. So to some degree, it, it's balancing that. And I think that the biggest thing from my end is you've got to be convinced of the values of the people that sit around the table with you. You've got to be convinced of your ability to be able to have an impact. And if those things line up, even if you do get the sense that, you know, potentially there's going to be a need to, to really earn your stripes and convince people, and I don't begrudge either of those two things, I think that's just part of how we work as human yeah. beings, the, you know, then you can still be the ability to say yes to something as long as those two areas are really ticked off. It's sort of like, you know, having that confidence in yourself and finding a way just to get in the room. Like I always had that feeling when I first got out of uni, like I just need to get in front of people because my extroverted nature would allow me to... Yeah to show the qualities i've been saying this to my brother and it's funny you've spoken a bit about youth unemployment he's you know found himself masters of maths and unemployed yeah um too common. yeah it's it's really common but I, as i was saying to him like you just need to get in front of the people it doesn't matter how so long as you can show your potential then yep. they can obviously see it big time i think it's you know it's a tricky time Particularly now that we've got a lot of these processes automated, I think it's made it even harder, you know, that a computer's doing the auto sort of resumes that are coming in for a particular job. And, you know, big data has trained it to go, okay, the ideal candidate for this job has five years of experience and is this sort of age and, you know, this sort of extra credentials or this sort of, you know, um, grade point average at university. Uh, and, you know, often the difficulty, particularly for young people is, well, I'm, I'm not going to meet those criteria. Mm. You know, I've got a whole lot else, as you've just said, to offer, you know, in, in terms of the person that I am, the extracurricular things I might have been involved with, the life experience I've gone and collected alongside what I've been doing. But I think sometimes that's not really evaluated equally, fairly or at all within um, sort of the job hiring processes. So I'd agree, you know, a, a huge percentage. I don't think anyone would be able to get it right, but my rule of thumb would be well and truly over half, you know, of the appointments that happen out there happen through word of mouth. Yeah. It happened through they, someone they really going, yeah. you know, hey, yeah, I've met this great kid and I think they'd be perfect for the role and how about you give him a shot? Uh, and that'll lead to the hiring, you know, nine times out of 10 over someone that's just come in as a name on a resume. Yeah. I, yeah. My recent job actually just came through um, actually having a guest on the podcast. Oh, cool. I love <laughs> I that. I mean, it was, it was funny that I already knew him, but um, it just, yeah, it shows that the vast majority of positions are by referral, I think. Well, I think because um, increasingly we believe we can teach content and teach, yeah. you know, that technical knowledge. And what we're looking for is those human factors that you can't train for. Yeah. And that's what's built when you have that sort of, you know, interactional connection with someone. Definitely. You spoke before about mentors. Mm. Um, I loved reading about your, 
I don't know, what do you call it, mentorship or menteeship with uh, Sam Walsh? Oh, I think yeah. there was yeah. an interview back in 2016. For those that are listening, this is the former CEO, Sam Walsh of Rio Tinto. And I think at that time you said that Sam's mentoring or th- that development for you was the biggest growth that you'd ever had in your life. Um, I know that the two of you would often chat over WhatsApp with him bragging about sitting for dinner with uh, – the world's glitterati, including uh, <laughs> yeah. the Chinese president. But he does I, have some pretty incredible <laughs> life experiences, I'm not going to lie. I'm curious as to now, it's two years down the track, mm-hmm. what principles, processes or mindset in particular did Sam impart on you that you still hold now? I think, I mean, Sam remains a, such a significant influence in my life and I think the biggest thing, I had the privilege uh, as you know, a young something of working working for Sam when I was at university. Uh, he created a role for me working at Rio Tinto. And the thing I reflect on often with him and in terms of the significance, it, just in the way that he made me think about the world, was how lucky I was to work for a leader who cared about and in fact believed so passionately in the role of business in society mm. and who was a, a, a really, when I think about it, a leader before his time in a lot of what we're reading about, sort of the BlackRock chairman come out and write to shareholders around, you know, corporate um, social license to operate and, you know, the broader view that business needs to have of the way that it fits into the, the puzzle that is our world. Sam was someone who took a really broad view of that, be it mental health, be it Indigenous employment, the environment, whatever it was. He was someone that genuinely cared and above and beyond what he did through his leadership of the company, was personally involved. I had no idea how he managed to do it. You know, I'd look at his diary and go, how are you chairing, you know, these four nonprofits and, you know, doing this volunteer speech at the university and off to the art gallery to open that and you're patron of this. But he was a believer that that was such a critical role that business played. And I feel very lucky to have had a leader that was that forward thinking and progressive um, play such a significant role in helping me think about the role the role that I wanted to play as a leader, but also the role that the different sectors and the responsibility the different sectors have in taking our society forward and leading mm. on social issues. How do you do it? Because, I mean, I've looked at your LinkedIn. I've looked, I mean, you're up there with um, my recent interview with uh, Bernard Salt in terms of directorships and board <laughs> He'd seats. leave me for dead. <laughs> uh, not Bernard Salt, it was uh, Bernard Wheelerhand who used to be in the mining industry oh, cool. a, a while ago. But, I mean, how do you do it? In terms of? just, you know, being there for all of these things. I mean, you've got so many board seats that you sit on, non-for-profits that you're involved in. I'm curious as to how you find the time. Uh, look, I think... You've got a great EA. <laughs> yeah, I do, for that matter. Monique rocks. Um, so that helps my life enormously. I always say everyone should be very grateful that she runs my diary and not me because it would be a disaster if I was in charge. But I think... Look, a couple of things. I don't. Firstly, I don't think you ever nail it. Like it's one of those things. I'm a big believer. It's a, a journey, not a destination. Like I'm continually every every year, every week, every month, asking myself, you know, how can I do this more effectively? How can I be more efficient? In how I manage this part of my life? And um, you know, how do I structure? I'm a big believer in it's actually about energy, not time. So how do I manage my mm. energy in a way that's going to be able to ensure that I can give everything that I want to be able to give to the roles that I've got. So I think 
it is that continual process of refinement. I love learning from other people about how they do that too. Um, you know, there's a lot of incredibly, not even just experienced directors, but leaders who shoulder an enormous amount of responsibility. Um, and probably like you, when I get the opportunity to, to sit down with them, that's a question I love talking to them about. Mm. You know, how do you, how do you not just show up and, and again, to that earlier comment we're making, tick the box, but how do you position yourself in a way where you're poised and ready to add value at every moment that requires you to do so? Yeah. So I think that is that continual journey. I think the other thing I've got better at with time is just becoming much more discerning around what I say yes to. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I, I used to <laughs> love this. Steve, well, there's a couple of Steve Jobs quotes I really like, but there was one where he said, you know, I care as much about um, the things we say no to at Apple as the things we say yes to. And it was just this piece around there. They say no all the time so that when they say yes, they're truly two feet in. And I've probably come to appreciate the importance of that more and more as I've gotten older. And I think making sure you've got the right filter criteria for what opportunities you want to say yes to. And that'll mm. vary from year to year and from different stages of your life. But making sure that you know what criteria have to be met for you in an opportunity in order to say yes, because it's really easy when you don't have criteria otherwise just to say yes to things. Of course. Yeah. Um, without having that degree of discernment over them. And I mean, how... Uh, I, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you. Before we didn't get to cover that, but you spoke about business and society and how it was imparted to you by Sam. Um, obviously, you're involved in a lot of charities, as I said before. How, what's your worldview on that? Because, like, if we think just back to the AFL, there was a lot of um, backlash to... Uh, I'm thinking about the recent political debate about um, the, the male vote, the, the same-sex marriage vote and so on. Postal um, but you do notice more and more that organizations are really involved in key issues mm -hmm. that maybe the CEO or the board is really passionate about. How, how much do you think is that becoming a important point for, for leaders to show their difference? In I think it's critical. I mean, you look at the Edelman trust barometer and everyone's sort of talking about how poor the state of trust is and it is, it's terrible. You know, every sector dropped last year and for the first time all of them dropped below the, the kind of what we call the critical 50% threshold. So, you know, more people are distrusting than are trusting. Um, but one of the really interesting points that they highlighted in this survey and it was a particular call out around Australian CEOs was that Australian CEOs went up in trust. And particularly they went up in trust where they had been um, outspoken on an issue of social significance. So you, Alan Joyce is around the marriage equality postal survey, Andy Vesey's around, say, you know, the, the future energy mix and, mm. and moving away from coal-fired power and things like that. That was a significant bump in public trust. This choice to speak up when you could easily remain silent um, was something that was really seen to be a significant factor in in people, well, I guess in, in CEOs and leaders endearing themselves more to the public or the, the um, customer base that they're trying to um, connect with. Yeah. So I think it's becoming more and more of a, a business imperative. And we're talking a lot around belief-driven buyers now where we're seeing people unsurprisingly, I mean, I certainly think about it all the time as, you know, as an employee, I would want to be sure that the organisation I worked for didn't just conveniently have the words written on the About Us page of the website around the values that we espouse at this place of work, but when it mattered, they stood for them. Mm. They were prepared to actually go, well, 
And I think Airbnb were a great example last year. They said to themselves at the start of the marriage equality um, campaign, we say one of our core values is belonging. There's an issue that is completely threatening belonging in this country. So we can't sit here and be passengers while this issue takes place and while there's a public conversation about this if we truly stand for this notion of belonging. Hmm. So they came out with that really powerful campaign, you know, in conjunction with, with Qantas, which is all about until we all belong you know, activating that value and driving a, a really personal but I think really well-executed piece of kind of part advertising, part public advocacy that played a pretty significant role in the vote. Mm. I wonder, like, and I'm noticing this now, just in little things like Facebook ads and so forth, the pushback you sort of see on marketing or, or optics that just sort of seem fake so I wonder how, and, and I, I think a lot of this has come about from the sort of the polarizing world that we're in now where people see a lot of, like they see through a lot of stuff that's being said by certain people. Yep. So I wonder if taking action is now sort of a way to break that down. Um, you know, like I said, I've seen it in marketing with people who have these ridiculous forms of copy and advertising and so forth that is just absolute fluff versus people who just say, what they think and are, are honest about it. Like, yeah. I would like you to spend money with us or we believe in this. So it's it's an interesting movement, I think. Um, and like you said before, that trust barometer, I guess you'd call it, um, has changed as well. Mm. One of the things when I was looking th- through your LinkedIn and everything you've done, there was sort of this commonality amongst all of that. And number one for me was drive and progression up a hierarchy so whether it's going from work experience to an events manager or as a strategic project consultant all the way up to chief of staff and as well it's sort of like a commonality in your year 12 achievements i mean i look at your year 12 work it's it's ridiculous and and i just wonder when did you realize how driven you were and (laughs) you could sort of utilize that in in many different areas. It's funny. I remember a conversation. My grandmother is my favorite person on the planet. She's, um, her name's Dorothy. She's uh, 89 years young and she's- Good old dot. Yeah, good old dot. Exactly. Um, And we talk all the time. We talk every Sunday and every Wednesday, but normally in between as well. And I remember we had a conversation and I can't remember for the life of me what I was talking to her about, but I was basically saying something around, oh, I really feel like I've got a bit of momentum at the moment. It must have been with something I was doing with work or, you know, a new initiative I was trying to get up. And she said, Holly, you were born in perpetual motion. (laughs) I just thought that's a classic line from my grandmother. I laughed out loud for about five minutes. Um, So I think people knew it about me long before I knew it about myself and I hear kind of those stories now that I have no recollection of of, you know, that the year three teacher used to leave me to look after the classroom when, you know, she had to duck out of the, the class for a moment and all this stuff that I had no idea was actually going on. Um, but I think my, for as long as I can remember myself, I've been driven. Yeah. Again, not that I would have identified that as being anything special. It was just the way I was, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. realise that you, yeah. anyone felt differently. Um and, and that people didn't, you know, weren't insanely passionate about what they were doing 24-7 and, you know, wanted to always give. Always thinking about it. Always thinking about it, yeah. you know, um, talking about it, dreaming about it, you name it. So I think, you know, it's only with time as you get more out into the world and you start to realise that people really are driven differently. And that's not a bad thing. That's part of what makes our world so beautiful. But um, that's probably 
not until my mid-teens on a couple of leadership programs and then probably really um, sort of transitioning out of uni and into the world of work where I think the more that you get choice around how you spend your time, the more it becomes telling how driven you are because yeah. obviously with your school days, they're pretty preset for you. You've got to be somewhere 8.30 till 3.30. Um, to a large degree, you know, there's a commonality to the way everyone does life. Even uni to a certain extent, you start to see a bit of variance in how people spend those contact hours and how many hours of study get done. But I think it's probably the choices that you start to make after that that mm. are, are really telling. And that's probably where I've just started to acknowledge. And, and it's a really important thing to acknowledge about yourself because you can't put the expectations you'd place on yourself on others. You've got to be really conscious about that when you lead a team. So you've either got to hire for people that are just as driven as you or you've got to be mindful of the fact that you've got to um, – You've got to celebrate but also allow for different levels of drive and motivation. Uh, and you certainly notice it in the people that you enjoy spending all the time with. You know, I have a lot of wonderfully driven friends, driven in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, might I add. Not many of them playing in the field that I'm playing in. Um, in fact, probably more not than are. But I think uh, it's become more apparent for me in life, life at uni and post-uni. Yeah, I, th- I 100% agree with that. I mean... Would you say you're a conscientious type of person? Like, are you manically looking at your, like, are you a person who has lots of lists and are you regularly looking at your calendar and stuff like that? I'm not a details person. So I'm conscientious to the degree that I need to be to <laughs> achieve an outcome, but I'm an outcome person. Okay. So you're very open and creative then. And, and that would sort of drive. Yeah. I'm a big picture. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've got that sort of conscientiousness that becomes almost neurotic sometimes <laughs> and I have to um, I've got a couple of friends that. like that. But yeah. I'm also very, uh, you know, like open and creative and therefore trying to do too many things. Like I can imagine you being like me and sort of sitting there at 11 p.m. and thinking, oh, you know, should I be exercising SEO or social ads? You know, like little just random thoughts that you probably shouldn't, be having right then and there you need to relax and it sort of goes through your head anyway yeah which I think goes to that piece around how do you learn to manage your energy I used to be a lot more like that in my early 20s and I think one of the things I learned was it that doesn't serve you over the long run you know you need to be able to re-energize yourself and and nourish yourself in a way that can make sure you can do the marathon that you want to be able to to run that is life at the high performance level that you want to be able to do it mm. so for me learning about, you know, and getting, embracing meditation, you know, really harnessing fitness, uh, nutrition and eating right and all those sorts of things, making conscious choices around what I put in my body and what I don't, all that sort of stuff. I think um, we we pay a bit of lip service to it, but I actually think it's that really simple stuff that can make a hell of a lot of difference. Yeah. I think you said yourself that um, that that food is the original medicine at some point in an interview. Um, and I, I'd 100% agree with that. Um, that sort of gets me onto the topic of depression. And I mean, recently this has been something I've been fascinated by, um, particularly because of Anthony Bourdain. I mean, I've never really, I model, I model most of the way that I work interview wise on him. Cool. Okay. Um, and I mean, I really did love that guy. Um, the only celebrity ever. So it was, it was really, um, yeah, that suicide hit me very hard and made me think, long and hard about sort of the quiet demons that people battle in the dark. Yep. So um, I know you yourself have dealt with it. 
I wonder if it's slightly genetic and if you let things loose like exercise, um, fitness, health, meditation, etc., that's how it creeps in. Um, but I'm curious as to how you feel it developed in your life. Well, it's an interesting one. I, I don't want to speak out of school here in terms of just acknowledging that I don't know the medical science well yeah. enough to, to really speak about that. And I think it's a really dangerous area to, to pass kind of broad sweeping comments around. I, my understanding is you can have a genetic predisposition because people do talk about histories of um, mental illness within their families. Mm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm aware that to some degree you can maybe have a susceptibility to it. But, you know, ultimately my understanding of it is it's chemical. So whether it's something that you um, you might have to, to watch particularly because of a family history or whether it's something that by virtue of your lifestyle, your work pressures, you know, what's going on in the world around you, I think particularly with a lot of young people now, the pressures of social media, what that does to your serotonin levels and how that ultimately um, can unfortunately land a lot of people in a dark place and, we're seeing that one in four young Australians right now are struggling with some kind of mental illness. Um, I think, I think anxiety is going to be uh, anxiety yeah. and depression. But I really worry about how much I hear, particularly educators, talking to me about anxiety in ten and eleven and twelve year olds. I know, yeah. Um, it's really pronounced. So I, I think it's it's one of those things. I mean, I look at back at it now and go, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, and I don't say that lightly because it was a really dark period. Um, but what it made me do was look in the mirror really critically at the way I was living my life, what what I was choosing to allocate, what and who I was choosing to allocate my time and energy to, and to go, actually, maybe the way that I'm doing this, in fact, I know it isn't. It's not helping me. It's not serving me. Mm. Um, and some of that was, you know, big bucket stuff like um, – not having a comfort with being vulnerable. So just having yeah. to have this kind of ability to push through everything and and, um, and be strong, you know, that's a really unhealthy notion. And I think it's one that, that harms a lot of men in particular in yeah. our country. Um, I think there's a piece around the degree to which you need to do things for other people's approval. And, again, that was probably something I cared too much about trying to keep everyone else happy um, and not having enough of a consciousness around actually who am I and what do I care about and maybe if I make sure that that's done and don't worry so much about what other people think I should be doing, um, that might be a healthier way to lead, Yeah, live and lead. So for me it was a, an absolutely critical rebalance and I feel very lucky to say I spent the time uh, doing that right and I haven't looked back since um, and I'm convinced that I won't look back again because of how well I le- leaned in at that moment and the way that I've changed my life as a result. Yeah, it's. I mean, it sounds really, really similar to myself. I mean, I, don't, I didn't develop depression but I developed like full-blown uh, panic disorder mm. while I basically had an autoimmune issue. Yeah, right. Um, and... Uh, it's actually interesting because my two siblings uh, both have um, depression, I think. Uh, well, I mean, it was communicated to me about four years ago that they did and, you know, they, they managed that. But I, I've always wondered how much of it is genetic, mm. you know, and particularly if you get like really chronic issues. Like a, for me, the autoimmune thing was like food intolerances, which blew gotcha. out into like full and anxiety and... Um, all that sort of stuff, but also like vulnerability. That was a, th- a thing that really 
stood out to me because I, I feel like I grew up in a, a family that, you know, didn't have a lot of that, you know, yeah. I, I was brought up in for a long period by my grandma who sort of made me a big softy, but you know, my, my family, you know, it's just the little things like you, you, you notice, like say my uncle's family, they, they tell each other, they love each other all the time mm. and yours, it's very rare, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So I'm curious as to how you've learnt to be more vulnerable. Do you force yourself to do it at certain points or how do you go about it? I think part of it to begin with was acknowledging, uh, firstly, I read the book Daring Greatly. That okay. book changed my life um, in the way that it helped me reframe vulnerability. Uh, and part of what I, I think I did off the back of that, reading that book was, understanding and believing in by that point I sort of became convinced on how important vulnerability was I went okay well I need to be much more intentional around surrounding myself with people who respect vulnerability too and who will meet me in my vulnerability Mm. because the the most dangerous thing about being vulnerable is when you're convinced that you know you putting yourself out there as this fragile exposed little thing is going to be trampled all over by someone (laughs) who you know um, doesn't want to have you know two seconds of thought given to that so I think it, it led to a big change in the people that I surrounded myself with um, and a real want to be around people who had that ability to go to that depth, um, to show that much of themselves, to respect another person who was showing that much of themselves. Um, and it's funny, I, I don't know if you found this yourself, but I think once you start going to places of vulnerability, it you struggle to be in conversations where people can't yeah, because it feels really um, surface level. Yeah, it feels um, fake. Yeah. And it's not even like vulnerability doesn't have to be like, oh, I love you, friend, how, no. how great are we? It's just like being it's really real. honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whether it's good, bad, ugly, um, it's being able to have the preparedness to kind of express that. you know. And vulnerability is different for everyone. And I think that's the thing. Some people will sit really comfortably in saying the words I love you. Some people that will be the hardest series of of letters they'll ever string together in their life you know and for others it'll be the ability to to be a beginner and do something that's different to anything they've done before or to learn how to say no or to say yes or put themselves out there for something that's beyond what they might have been doing before so I think we've got to acknowledge that vulnerability looks different but that human beings have just this natural yearning for vulnerability to show up and be a part of how they do life. I think um, what's made me really realise it and sort of in an opposing way is in the world we're in now where everyone's polarised, the thing that really wins is persuasion and it sort of just shows the power of, like we really are social animals. And so conversely to that, the the idea of vulnerability is so powerful. Um, You know, I find myself doing little things like... you know, going back to before about forcing yourself to do it, like just sending my mum or dad like a message here and there. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. Like it's really, really hard when I you first that. first start doing it. Um, but after after a while, it just sort of becomes normal. Yep. Um, so yeah, I found that very very interesting. Um, you're you've noted yourself as a forensic. Questioner. Oh, I think I've been slapped that by a few <laughs> yeah. mentors. They're like, oh yeah, you're a forensic but, questioner. But I think that um, I think your quote was that um, you should always be interested rather than interesting. Yeah. Um, and I remember as a young kid always being scolded for asking way too many questions. I think my old boss, who was the uh, I think she was the fir- third interview that we had on the podcast, um, she would often talk about my nagging. 
at at work and how I just asked so many questions. So I'm curious as to how do you view this appetite to learn and how do you satiate it? It's an interesting one on the questions. I wish we didn't stop kids asking questions because it's amazing. Apparently if you want peak questioning, peak questioning is a four-year-old girl. You won't see more questions asked than if you spend a day with a four-year-old girl. Um, and it, the question numbers will vary, but it's over 150 questions a day, right. which doesn't surprise me at all um, as someone who used to babysit a lot in their their teenage years. Um, but I think by the time you become a teenager, that's already down to, you know, well below 20 in terms of questions. And I think, unfortunately, it just kind of continues downward from there. Um, and it's an irony of sort of living in the age of the knowledge economy and probably it never being more important than now to be capable of asking questions and and challenging um, the way that this information age is coming together. But it's it's something that's sort of been socialised out of us um, because it was. It was that frustrating thing uh, <laughs> that the teacher didn't want to be answering another question oh. or mum and dad just really wanted you to be quiet so we could, you know, hurry up and get there or whatever it might be um, that you have experienced um, but I think for me, uh, again, it comes back to who I surround myself with uh, and and as well balancing that. I try and make sure that I have enough people in my life that I, I'm never being too demanding on any one person for support in answering questions that I've got. So, you know, if it's thinking about, you know, my, my um, career, part of my career as a board director, I've got a number of um, mentors who are chairman and board directors who I will sit down with routinely and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, how it is you best navigate these sorts of issues around the board table. Can you help me think through it? As opposed to necessarily having just the one person that every time I've got a question, I'm going back to and saying, hey, could you help me? Hey, could you help me? So I think that plays a role in part. But I think also the more the time you spend out and about, the more that you start to gravitate towards the curious themselves, you know, and you find this tribe of people that are forensically curious too. And so not only have a a love of asking questions themselves, but have a real want to be able to help those that are uh, themselves seeking answers to find them. Yeah. So I, I think it's a combination of sort of finding people that can indulge those those questions or have an eagerness to be able to share their knowledge and information and also just being able to spread that widely enough that that's not too um, too cumbersome on any one individual's time because you've just got to be mindful of how busy people are. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to become aware of that and I should be more. Um, when it comes to leadership, I mean, you've spoken about this a lot and I loved this little bit that was in the interview with, uh, with Sam, but... When I sat down with Jeff Kennett, uh, as we were talking about before this interview, he emphasized that at the moment, at least, there's sort of no real political foresight on what Australia should be or what Australia is. I, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but at least that's my sentiment as well. Um, I know that Sam Walsh has often said to people that, or, you know, in the situation, meet the, the future Prime Minister of <laughs> Australia when referring to yourself. Um, I'm curious as to if you were PM tomorrow, just out of nowhere, what would your first 100 days look like? Oh, geez. Uh, well, you can tell that's not a career plan I have because <laughs> it's not something I've thought through in terms of what my first 100 days would look like. So um, you're only young. You've uh, yeah, well, that's true. We'll come I back guess. in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> See how things develop. Um, look, I think you're right. I think there is a lack of political 
leadership at the moment. And I think more than anything, there's a lack, we talked about this earlier, we, there's a lack of trust in our political leaders. We don't feel like they listen. We don't feel like they represent us. We don't feel like when they speak, they talk to us. We feel like they talk at us or above us. Um, and so I feel like we've unfortunately got a, a really a really sad state of play where it's not so dire. People, I was having this conversation with a business leader yesterday and I hate the response that you get at the moment. It, well, and it's not a unique one, but when you ask the question, what will it take to change, you know, significantly the, the leadership state in Australia? And everyone always says, oh, you need a burning platform. It won't happen till we've got a burning platform. Mm. And I always think, wow, what a cop out. Like, what do they mean by that? They though? mean it has to get worse before they'll have license for any kind of significant change. Mm. And I just think that's a bit sad in this day and age that we don't have leaders. I mean, you could look at a lot of the state of play in Australia right now and say we've got a burning platform at this moment. You know, I was watching a program on the on food insecurity in Australia, which is an alarmingly high rates for a country that is as developed as ours. Mm. You know, we we know that it's taking the average young Australian about three point nine years. To, after graduation to find a full-time job. So there's, there's huge challenges around the pathway to employment and obviously the changing skills mix that's going on in the economy. We've got an ageing population and we're, we're not really prepared for the, the variety of things from the NDIS right the way through to the ageing population and how they're going to transform what's demanded of our healthcare system in the next decade. So I think part of the difficulty we've got is a real disconnect between the world of Canberra and the world of most of us as everyday Australians. Yeah. And so it would probably be less of, you know, if I spent more time thinking about it, I'm sure I could think about some some sort of policy outcomes that I'd want. But I think for me it would be an attitudinal shift, um, you know, and this is probably impossible, but doing things intentionally like spending as many of those 100 days not in Canberra as you possibly can, mm. you know, going on um, – a tour of listening to the people that um, all too often feel like they're not engaged in our political conversations and dialogue uh, and thinking about how you create a much more open and accessible um, line of communication between the everyday Australian and where we're at in Canberra right now because I think we need to be thinking about things that have a broader cultural ripple effect on our political system than just kind of, you know, that one aspect of the science policy or the defence budget or something like that. Yeah, we've had previous guests who are fairly involved in um, the blockchain slash governance space like New Vote, um, Horizon State and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And one of the biggest things they've spoken about is citizen juries. So it's, it's funny that you mention getting out there because citizen juries um, are focused on that, bringing in uh, I guess, citizens to yeah. solve problems. So, And this is why I've gotten involved with my vote. I mean, those guys are doing an amazing job of trying to create more direct democracy, you know, and allowing the average person wherever they might be in the world because it's quickly becoming a, a global platform that, you know, is obviously Australian sort of founded and developed. But it, it's so critical that particularly in this day and age when we have the technological capability to do it, that we do create those channels and we do open up that conversation. Whereas I think right now we're probably a little bit guilty of a, a growing divide between um, the haves and the have-nots mm. and increasingly operating in kind of echo chambers, which yeah. doesn't serve, you know, the the understanding and the, the broader lens that we need to have to the way that we're developing policy. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing I'm running out of time, but before we jump into some short, fast questions, mm -hmm. the last thing I, I'd like to really know is um, what 
I guess, lessons or principles do you hold with you today that was taught to you, whether directly or indirectly, by either of your parents? Mm. It's probably more my grandmother for me. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been probably the most significant influence in sort of my, particularly my values and principles developing. Why, why is that? Um, because she is such a principled woman herself, mm-hmm. I think, and she's a really unique person. You know, she's just one of those really special people. and Someone you just gravitate towards. Yeah, and I think there, there's probably two aspects of her that I've always really tried to take on board. One is she's saying to me all the time and it didn't matter if we were walking past, you know, a piece of trash on the ground or whether she was stepping into a situation where someone had been treated disrespectfully. She'd always say, Holly, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. So I think she was really responsible and and critically she did then step in and show me what it meant to fix that situation, be it putting the, you know, the litter in the trash, be it stepping in to tell someone that that was a a disrespectful way to talk to someone they ought to apologise. She, I think that justice complex that I've got um, and and that want for equality and and fairness and inclusivity comes really strongly from what she role modelled. And I think the other one, she's got this incredible capability when you're, talking with her. It wouldn't matter if you were, I don't know, the, the local garbage guy, the lady from the library, the the premier, she would treat you equally and you would all walk away feeling like you were the most important person um, <laughs> on the planet. And what you did mattered so much. And aren't we lucky that you're doing that? Yeah. And I always thought that was such an incredible capability. And one of my earlier leadership influences, Sir Charles Court, whose leadership program I went on at 15, he was known as being a similar leader who could just connect with and uh, make people of all different walks of life, ages, backgrounds feel significant and important. And I think that's a really beautiful trait that um, is always something I've tried to do my best to embody. Yeah. Uh, Dot sounds like a real character. She's a ripper. (laughs) Um, okay, short, fast questions to finish off. Okay. Uh, what is your morning ritual? Uh, well, those that follow me on Twitter, you know I'm an early riser, so up before the sparrows. Um, and I vary my routine a bit depending on what I'm I'm feeling like in any given month, but um, typically has some kind of meditation or breathing exercise, um, reading, journaling. Um, I'm, I more use exercise later in the day, so I'm less of a morning exerciser. But they're the, they're the combination of things that tend to be in my mornings. And exercise is running and weights and stuff like that, or is it more aerobic based? Uh, well, being a triathlete, it's a lot of running, um, yeah. swimming, and cycling. And then I've really gotten on board with Pilates recently. So I'm a big Pilates fan now. Okay. Um, how do you decompress in the evenings if you get the chance? Go for a run. Go That's the run. best, without a doubt. Um, yeah, exercise of some form is my main uh, way to decompress. Okay. Best purchase under $200? That's a tricky one. Um, coffee to share with someone. <laughs> I like that. Um, what seems obvious to you but not to others? Oh, jeez. I don't know. It's making a lot of assumptions. <laughs> um, it seems obvious. Oh, Port Adelaide are going to win a flag. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think the Melbourne media are on board with that yet. That's why no, I say that. I think Port Adelaide fans are, are increasingly getting warm. The Melbourne media are definitely in a bubble. I think about that having um, been a St Kilda supporter and learnt about uh, Rory Sloan just being re-signed to Adelaide. Ah. 
So um, makes me feel great. Yeah, um, I bet that was uh, that was the <laughs> very much the fated plan, wasn't it? Exactly. So there you go. Um, what frustrates you that society is not able to find middle ground on? Ooh, probably the energy conversation at the moment. I just feel like we're really polarized on the way forward on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a troubling topic for a lot of people when it could be a lot simpler. Yeah. Um, last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, let's say, where would it be and what would it say? <laughs> you know, I, it's funny you should say this because I was flicking through uh, a series of quotes earlier today that were just on my phone and then there was one I was thinking and the reason I say this is because I thought I laughed myself when I read it and I thought, geez, this would be an interesting one to erect on a billboard somewhere in Australia because it was actually a, a photo of a garden bed and it had a little sign in the garden bed and the sign said, I'm doing my best to grow here, please don't trample on me. <laughs> And I thought, how interesting in a country of, you know, where, where tall poppy yeah, is yeah, such yeah, a I widespread like phenomenon. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to challenge the attitude of celebrating growth, celebrating ambition and um, trying to make sure that we don't trample on those who are sticking their neck out and having a go and trying to make something of it. I really like that. I really like that. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Holly Ransom or LinkedIn uh, or you can uh, email me through my website, www.emergent.global. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.